Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 16. Rich has prayed us in, and so we know by now that in these first two chapters of Colossians, what Paul was doing was essentially giving his rebuttal to the heresy of Gnosticism. And what a fine job he did, and, and it was so rich, and it is so rich, and he was so comprehensive about why that, that doctrinal system was fallacious and weak and not to be trusted or followed. So that's what you have in these first two chapters. But where we start today in verse 16 and the remaining of the chapter is we're actually going to get under the hood of Gnosticism. We're really going to get face-to-face with it and see exactly what it was that the Gnostics were peddling to the churches at Colossae and Laodicea, as Paul mentioned in verse 1. And so we're talking about man's isms, or the isms of man. And so when you're talking about isms, those are simply philosophies of man. And there, there is no shortage of them. <laughs> I mean, right, you just get on Google and you can camp out for weeks looking at all of man's isms. And so we're going to be looking at that now. What man does not know is who is behind those isms. This is the issue. I mean, we know, praise the Lord, because of God's word, but, but man really doesn't know the author of these isms. Right? He does not know that. As a matter of fact, um, while they were new to the Gentiles at Colossae, they still were not new. Because what you see under the hood of Gnosticism in Colossians chapter 2 looks very similar to what you see in Genesis chapter 3. And it's exactly what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9, that there is no new thing, no new thing under the sun. Right? It's not. Satan, as you should know, listen, if there's one thing about the adversary that you should know is that he never strays from what is tried and true. Once Satan realizes that something, a tactic, is effective, he never stays away from it. Now, to the disappointment of some Missouri fans in the room, This will be tough to hear, but we'll get through it very quickly. But Missouri fans will remember, in 2013, the Missouri Tigers football team played in the SEC championship game against the Auburn Tigers. And that game, I mean, I I was rooting for Mizzou. I really was. I was rooting for the Tigers. I wanted them to be Auburn. and, And I'm watching that game, and there was a guy for Auburn played running back. His name was Trey Mason. And he had a career day. He rushed for 304 yards. He carried the ball 46 times. I mean, when you're watching that game, it became obvious there was no secret about what Auburn was going to do. As a matter of fact, Auburn's quarterback only threw the ball 11 times. And that was probably a bit much. Trey Mason carried the ball 46 times and rushed for over 300 yards to this day. It's an SEC championship game record. And I really felt sorry for Mizzou because it was obvious. They're like, listen, we're going to line up 
and we're just going to run it at you until you show us you can stop it. So guess what's coming? Number, whatever his number was, 21 or number, I can't remember what his number was, but we're going to run him right down your throat. And you go, okay, please give me the what behind one of your sports illustrations again. Here's the what. That's exactly what Satan does. Once he realizes that something is effective against you, guess what he does? He runs it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you show him you can stop it. So the same things that he ran in Genesis chapter 3, he keeps running down the throats of unbelievers and even believers until he is shown it's no longer effective. Why would you stop if it's working? Case in point, Auburn Tigers. Okay, I'm done <laughs> with that illustration. All right, so let's get under the hood here in Colossians 2 on Gnosticism. So because of the doctrinal truth that we spent four weeks looking at in verses 10 through 15, verse 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, the Gnosticism that we're looking at that was at Colossae and that was coming against the church at Laodicea is, is mentioned in the book of Colossians was a Jewish philosophical religious system that we define from verse 8 as Jewish sophistry. This is what you're dealing with, and Paul begins to unpack it for us in verse 16. Because the five things that Paul mentioned in verse 16, all five of them pertain directly to the law. All five of them. And that's exactly what he is dealing with. Now, concerning that, consider what we see here, it's in your notes, beginning in Psalm 147, verse 19. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. We keep going. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, pay attention, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. What's the point? The point is the law was never given to Gentiles. That's the point. Crystal clear. It was not given to us or the church. So that meant that Jewish dietary laws and holy days were not pertaining to the church at Colossae. They were not to concern themselves with such things because those things were never written to them. So the first ism that we discover under the hood of Gnosticism very clearly, is legalism. This is the first ism. This is the only way we're going to look at today. 
The issue with and danger of legalism should be vividly clear from just looking at the word because at the root of this word legalism is the word legal. So that tells us something, which means based on or concerned with the law. Now, that's not a bad thing if you are a lawyer or you work in the criminal justice system. Absolutely, you must be preoccupied and concerned with the law. I get that. But it takes a very dark turn when a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the dispensation of grace begins to concern themselves with the law. This is the issue, and that is at the heart of legalism. Legalism teaches people, listen, to base their life on laws. This is a problem. Where you govern your life based on laws, your life breaks down into your list of your do's and your don'ts. That's a problem. Legalism teaches people to base their life on that and then they are judged very severely when they break those laws. The dietary laws given to the Jews are found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 at a basic level. There is nothing wrong with a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from a Romans 14 liberty in Christ perspective. There is nothing wrong with a believer in Jesus Christ choosing to abstain from certain foods and drinks. No problem with that whatsoever. In Christ, you get to exercise your liberty to that extent. No problem. But legalists are far from okay with that, aren't they? Because if I choose to abstain from pork, Jason better. If pork is not for me, it's not for you either. And this is what legalism does, right? What, what, I, what I choose to be good for me better be good for the rest of everybody. If I believe that alcohol is the devil's poison and that believers are absolutely in sin for drinking wine, then absolutely you better not drink wine. It's sin. Are we uncomfortable yet? We have churches who make spiritual livings enslaving people to such things. There are believers who sit in churches and they govern their lives based on laws that men hand down. So this is how I live my life. These are the laws that I govern my life by and you are going to do the same. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your... Legalism, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Listen, it is not my place, it will never be my place to regulate for anyone what they eat and drink. That's not my place, nor is it my business. (laughs) I don't have time for one. What I can tell you is, very clearly from Scripture, what I can tell you is, gluttony and drunkenness are sin. That I can tell you crystal clear from Scripture. No doubt about it. And I do have a word to us as Baptists. Here's what you need to know. 
The word gluttony, or some form of it, is only mentioned in four times in Scripture. Guess what? Every single mention of the word gluttony in Scripture is associated with drunkenness every time. Check me out on it. Every time gluttony is mentioned, it's mentioned in the company of drunkenness. Every single time. This is why Paul stressed excess when it comes to wine in Ephesians 5.18. And to pastors in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, this is why he stressed not abstinence, but not being given to it. Abstinence and being given to something are two totally different words. And some right now are tempted to be upset with me, and I will surely be criticized for what I am saying, or in their mind, what I am not saying. Because what I am not saying that they want me to say is they want me to come out and say that the Bible says it is sin for a believer to drink. The problem is I can't do that because the Bible doesn't say that. So I'm not, listen, that's what the legalist does. The legalist says, I feel so deeply about this and I want to hold this position so deeply that I'm going to make God agree with me. The issue is not drinking anyway. The issue is walking in the spirit. That's the issue. Because you cannot, nor will you, eat or drink to excess when you're walking in the spirit of God because one of the traits of that is what? Temperance. So you can't walk in the spirit and be a glutton or a drunkard. Now, please hear me. If, if, if you want to know, this isn't a law, this is a principle, but oh my goodness, this is a principle. I think if you ask me, this I, I, I do live and die by, and I think you should too. You go, okay, there you go. Now you're becoming a legalist. <laughs> no, here, hang with me. Every man and woman must know what is not expedient or profitable for them. First Corinthians six twelve. That's the issue. You need to be crystal clear. And brutally honest with yourself about what is, what is not expedient for me or profitable. That is not wise. That is not for me. In other words, just because we can do something does not mean it is best that we do so. Now, I, I'm in a room, and I got my brothers in Christ, so my brothers will totally get where I'm going here. One of the things I missed most about Long Island is we live 20 minutes from the ocean. Oh, my goodness. Do I miss the ocean? Man, I, I would go out on my, on, my, on, my, on my deck in the mornings on a, on a nice, breezy day, and I could smell the salt blowing in off the ocean. I miss that. I miss piling the kids up into the van and we go to Dunkin', or not Dunkin' Donuts, but they're everywhere, but 7-Eleven. We get coffee and get snacks and we load the kids up and that's when they were still watching the DVD player in the van, you know. 
and we take a drive down Ocean Parkway on Long Island, and we have the windows down, a beautiful breeze. Don't you remember? Don't you miss that? Oh, man. The ocean was beautiful. But guess what? In July, when it's 90 degrees on Long Island, and Jones Beach is literally packed with thousands of women in bikinis, uh, that wasn't for me. That wasn't expedient for me. So guess what? I didn't go then. Every man and every woman must know what is not expedient for them. Be honest with yourself. Now, there are some things that others do that I do not do. And guess what? They are not wrong. And it's not my place to drop hints or, well, you know, I know you, but yeah, that, that, that's not for me. No, I keep my mouth shut. It's, it's not for me. It's not best. Now, this is going to sound very strong. And guys, I'm telling you, I, I notice it. And okay, I'm a parent like many of you. Have you noticed as your kids get older in their relationship with God and they get to manage or steward their liberty in Christ and there are times when the Holy Spirit says, shut up. It is not your place to speak there. He gets to wear his hair that way. If, if You know what? If she wants to, like, okay, my daughter, man, she's, come on, give me a break. I mean, she is, that's my, I mean, come on, that's my baby, right? But I mean, like, I'm like, listen, what are you, what is your bed? Is it some kind of museum or something? Why do you keep ordering all these pillows and comforters and, and you're, you're spending your, your own money on this stuff? Why do you need 10 pillows on your bed? <laughs> we, we, we've given you five from Walmart. I mean, we, we've given you bedspreads, and why do you got to order this? What is this comforter? You, you got to have a special comforter, right? I, 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 don't, I, I don't get to tell her how to spend her money. I don't understand it, but it's not my place. Are you with me? But the older we get, we just can't, not that we can't, we won't restrain ourselves from this. Hear me. Legalism is demonic. That sounds very strong. I think I can prove it biblically. But legalism is demonic. Please don't, don't misunderstand me. When the word of God is clear, about sin. When the word of God is clear about what's right and what's not right, absolutely we speak. But there are some lines where the word of God says, you know what? I haven't gone there, so don't you go there. Talking to the scribes and Pharisees who were legalists, Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell. Serpents and vipers are clearly associated with the devil. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent. We keep going. 1 Timothy 4, beginning of verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, 
giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. No issue whatsoever if you don't want to eat this or that, but be careful. Legalism is so very dangerous, listen, because it overrules God. It overrules God. God is the one who gives us richly all things to enjoy, the Bible tells us, 1 Timothy 6, 17. But the legalist says, not so fast, I will tell you what you can and cannot enjoy. How about that? <laughs> Overruling God. Now, Paul spoke about days in verse 16, and holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days. These were yearly, monthly, weekly observances that were, again, never given to the Gentiles. Historically, many of you remember a man by the name of William Miller, who falsely predicted Jesus would return in either 1843 or 1844. Obviously, he was wrong, as many have been and continue to be. But he was the founder of the Millerites, which we know today as Seventh-day Adventists. This group believes deeply that believers should keep the Sabbath, which means the church should be gathering on Saturday and not Sunday. And in their very, very strong estimation, all of us are in sin this morning. The question I've always had when I've had those conversations, I have had conversations with people in that group, and I've never had anyone answer this question from or to a place of, of biblical satisfaction, if I can say that. My question always comes back to, well, what do you do with Exodus 31.15? Where Moses was very clear that anyone who did any work on the Sabbath day was put to death. So what do you do with that in 2020? I mean, you can give it a shot. But the next conversation I have with you will be behind bars. That was, you can't even enforce that today if you tried. I also find it very interesting that this movement was founded by a man who had a failed prophecy. You know what Deuteronomy 18:20 talks about with men like that? Just like if you didn't keep the Sabbath, you were put to death. Guess what? If you had a failed prophecy, guess what happened? You were also put to death. But we have an entire movement that has sustained since the 1800s based on, uh, by a man who had a failed prophecy. Are you kidding me? Guys, this is why it is so critical for us to be established in the word of God so that you can discern these things. But nowhere in the New Testament are believers ever commanded to observe the Sabbath. 
Consider Paul's rebuttal to the Judaizers who were peddling the same heresy to the churches of Galatia. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 9. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, rudiments, as we saw in Colossians, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Okay, Paul, what weak and beggarly elements are you referring to? Verse 10, ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Doesn't sound like Paul was much of a Seventh-day Adventist. Far from it. He was so concerned about this that he feared that his investment in them could potentially have been a waste of time. I mean, this is what he's associating this whole Sabbath business with for the believer. Please hear this. Legalism is a waste of God's time. It's a waste of God's time. And this is exactly what we do in churches where we just load people down with all these rules and regulations. All we're doing is wasting God's time where people are just making sure I I, I don't do this. I don't wear that. And and I don't drink this. And I don't go there. And and I I don't say that. And I got to make sure my skirt is this long. And I got to make sure. I mean, give me a break. It's your whole life. Paul says that's weak and beggarly. (laughs) The resurrection of Christ occurred on the first day of the week, as we know, and the church has followed the pattern of meeting on that day since, and nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But we could actually meet (laughs) on Saturday, we could meet on Friday. As long as we understand that Sunday... It's not the new Sabbath. That's the issue. Now that is so very important because of what we see in verse 17. Look at it again. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So Sunday has not replaced the Sabbath because the church has not replaced Israel. That's important. That's why Sunday is not the new Sabbath. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul was very careful and very clear to keep you straight and keep it clear to you that there is a difference between the nation of Israel and the church. Paul was very clear about that. This is why he gives you three chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, to show you very clearly that God is far from done with the nation of Israel. i just give you one verse. Romans 11:1. 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God is not finished with the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel has not received her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that truth demands a second coming, which is about the nation of Israel first. Now, this influences many other things which drive how we 
divide the word of God in this place. But there is a phrase in your Bible that you only find in the book of Matthew. And again, to this crowd, this will be review. For some, it will not be, and that's okay. But you find this phrase in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Matthew alone, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. You do not find it in any of the Gospels or any other book in Scripture. As we know, Matthew's Gospel presents Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. So the focus of the Gospel of Matthew is very Jewish, not Gentile or the church. So to be clear, the nation of Israel today is waiting on two things. They're waiting on their king, who he already came, but he's coming back. They're waiting on their king, and they're waiting on the kingdom. That's what they're waiting on today. Both were promised to them in the Old Testament. And listen very carefully, both are viewed very literal by them. They're not only anticipating a spiritual king and a spiritual kingdom. Jews, true Jews, will tell you that they are awaiting a literal king, the Messiah, promised and prophesied from the Old Testament, and a literal earthly kingdom. That is what they are still waiting on. Be not mistaken. Before his ascension, the apostles asked Jesus this question in Acts 1-6 in your notes. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They were asking about a literal messianic kingdom. There was nothing allegorical about their question whatsoever. And notice, he did not correct them. No earthly kingdom was ever promised to the Gentiles or to the church. That is why the phrase kingdom of heaven is exclusive to Matthew's gospel. And in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees at the first coming of Christ, if he was really the Messiah, then he would have overthrown the Romans and he would have installed this kingdom. This is one of the contentions they had with him, because that's what they're looking for, literally. So when you make the kingdom of heaven, which is a place, by the way, synonymous with the kingdom of God, as most do, then by default, guess what you become? You become a replacement theologian, which is hard to justify in Scripture. This says the church has replaced Israel, so we are now, we are now God's chosen. Well, Paul said that, no, actually God's not done with them, and he hasn't replaced us or replaced them with us. And the promises made to them find fulfillment in the church. Here's the problem with that. What do you do with verse 17 of Colossians chapter 2? Which things to come did Paul have in mind? What do you do with that verse? He was crystal clear that the things in verse 16 are not for the church, but they are for another time. 
And in verse 17, he made it clear they represented something that is coming, but had not come at the time of this writing and has not come as we sit here. Are you guys tracking with, with me here? Clearly, Paul was referring to the millennial kingdom where Jewish ordinances such as the Sabbath will be reinstated. Clearly. Consider Isaiah 66, 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh Come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Here's a question for you. Where can we point to in history where this has ever been the case? Where all flesh came to worship before him. Jews and Gentiles. It's never happened. It will happen. It's coming. I mean, the closest you can get is Adam and Eve, and that didn't last long. That's the time period that the Apostle Paul had in view. Now, in terms of what that means for us today, uh, he tells you, uh, well, we're waiting for the rapture, which is what what book follows Colossians, Thessalonians, what do we find there? Promise of what? The rapture. So what's our focus until then? Well, the rest of verse 17, but the body is of Christ. In other words, we are not to preoccupy ourselves with legalism. Why? Because there is no substance in those things The substance is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So, as I wrap up, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Are you a legalist? I know you're tempted to say, oh, of course not. I would never be. Okay, I hear you. But would you really be honest with yourself and trust God to search and try you on this? Do you find that you are holding other people to standards that you've set for yourself that you are coming short of demanding that they follow. You're a legalist if you are. Can I tell you one of the things that I had to learn as a husband? And I know you're like, dude, you had to learn that? Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I had to learn that I am not her Holy Spirit. Man, I would say probably the first, for sure, five years... I was wrestling with God on that, I'm I'm sure longer, where I would see her do things and I'm like, (gasps) how dare you? I mean, early on in our marriage, I mean, we have been married for, gosh, two months. I was on the phone with our premarital counselors. Hey, I was talking to John. John is Sam's brother-in-law at our premarital counseling. I'll tell you what it was, okay? There you go, okay? I was, I was a hardcore legalist, man. God had to deal with me. She was going to Walmart. Okay, no big deal. Except I saw her grab keys. And I said, are, you, are, you, are you, you going somewhere? She was like, yeah, I'm going to run out of the store. I said, dress like that? 
You, you got my last name. And you, you're going to go out representing me like that? <laughs> Boy, can you smell the pride? <laughs> you, hey, you're, you're a Morgan. We, we don't roll like that. <laughs> so we had a little discussion. Not a good one. Okay, you know, listen, can I tell you? Man, I, I from childhood, right? From childhood, I mean, man, you, you don't leave the house looking any kind of way. Man, you make sure you look nice and sharp and presentable, and so you're going to, you're not leaving my house looking like that. <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> Things like that. Are you with me? Where, where we have these expectations, and, and, and man, you're going to, hey, we're free in Christ, amen? Okay, can we pray? Father, I want to thank you for your word today. I want to thank you for how clear, how good, and how simple it is. Father, I do trust fully that it does not return void and that, Lord, you have dealt with all of us as only you can. And I do pray that what we've heard, um, God, will seal to our hearts. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.